Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. And I'm excited to talk about vultures. (laughs) And what's your name? Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. That was on purpose. <laughs> I just want you to know that. Yeah, oh, I, I, I figured as much. That honestly. was not wires crossing. That was just, uh, we're in a silly mood today. Yeah, I could tell by the <laughs> shit-eating grin. Um, anyways, beautiful. We don't have any real news, but we are in person again. Uh, and we have a new mic set up, so that's pretty exciting. Very exciting. Hopefully you guys can tell the difference. If not, don't tell us, because we spent a lot of money on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah. It is much easier to record with, if nothing else. (laughs) It's so much easier to set up. Yes. If nothing else, we did it for ourselves. So keep your opinions to yourself. Um, (laughs) But yeah, let's let's dive right in. We're going to dive right in. So we got some spooky stuff uh, planned for this month. Of course, we had vampire plants to go along with our vampire apocalypse last time. (laughs) Um, Today, we are going to be talking about decomposition and scavengers and obviously i'm talking about the aerial kings of scavenging uh, kings vulture yeah okay Uh, there's a king vulture so i think that's in my brain right now there's also kingfishers yeah we're not but we're not talking about kingfishers today (laughs) nicole we're talking about dear wonderful vultures um yeah and this is actually gonna be a two-parter because there's a lot of cool stuff going on with vultures in the world and uh we are gonna be uh releasing next week uh yeah you heard us right uh one week away instead of two (laughs) weeks away um a, a second part for this vulture series but yeah let's jump in so nicole Yes. Um, vultures are pretty neat. They are. And uh, I do need to put a content warning in here. Oh, God. Uh, just because we're going to be discussing, like, decomposition and, like, the consumption of carcasses and that kind of stuff. So uh, just be conscientious of people around you who might be listening if this is something that you're interested in learning more about. Um, but that is the topic today, and there will be some, like, potentially gross... <laughs> Uh, sides to this conversation today, which I find fascinating. It's an important part of nature. Death Mm -hmm. is an important, integral part of nature. And vultures are an essential piece of that scavenging role of, like, decomposition and helping to, you know, keep our world clean. Yeah. So definitely get all your friends together and listen to it over your lunch break. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, baby. Um... I mean, I would, but, you know, we're <laughs> weird like that. Um, okay, and of course, here on Grassland Groupies, we are most interested in the animals that use grasslands. So I do want to get ahead of that element of this episode by saying um, most new world vultures, which is what we're going to focus on today, are actually not grassland specialists. Mm-hmm. But I want to point out that even woodland specialist vultures have ecological relationships with their grasslands nearby and so we will be talking about some of those components about how that like scavenging and decomposition plays out in these different habitat types um but yeah i just wanted to acknowledge that right off the back um so yeah let's uh jump into the uh most important aerial cleanup crew for death and diseases (laughs) and how their relationships to each other 
shape the world of decomposition. All right, let's go. Um, so I mentioned this already, but um, there are different groups of vultures, and this is very important. So in the New World, which is the Americas, uh, there are seven species of what we would call New World vultures. And this is a completely separate order. So in the world of birds, the primary taxonomic divisions that we use are orders of birds. And these New World vultures have an entirely unique order all of their own. Um, they're separated out from woodpeckers, from hawks and eagles and things like that. It's cathartiformes. Um, and their family is cathartidae. And I really like <laughs> that word. It means like purifying, which, okay, if you think of other words that kind of use that. Catharsis. Catharsis. Yeah, it's like you're purifying your emotions, right? And so cathartidae, and there are several vultures in the cathartes genus, they are purifying the world. Mm-hmm. In a spooky manner. <laughs> um, yeah, so so they're completely different. And on the other hand, there are about 16 species of vultures in the old world, which would be Africa and Eurasia. And those guys are basically literally bald eagles. Like they are related to eagles and hawks more than anything else, um, kites, things like that. They are in the same order as eagles and hawks. So they only superficially resemble American vultures. And there's a lot of key differences between those groups and how they function, even though they are all vultures. Um, those would include things like uh, uh, griffins and uh, bearded vultures. Those are the really like gnarly, like uh, vampiric looking ones with the pink feathers yeah. and like the crunch bones and stuff. So we're, we're saving those guys for a different conversation. And today we are specifically looking at American vultures. Uh, and uh, maybe we will kind of dip our toes into them by looking through a lens of geography first, just to kind of like familiarize you guys with these vultures. Okay, so in North America, we have four vultures. Uh, Nicole, what are they? Turkey vulture, black mm -hmm. vulture. Cotton. Yeah, I know. It's hard, right? California condor. California condor. Okay. Yep, that's it. You got it. Okay. It doesn't have vulture in the name. Is it a vulture? I don't know. I never thought about it that hard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's so fun. Okay. <laughs> anyway. And the last one I'm gonna I'm gonna say you're probably not going to guess. Hey. Don't but I'll like give you that. a clue. It occurs up into Mexico, and that's why it's a North American vulture. Yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah, the king vulture. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> See, like, you would never, like, a lot of us are familiar with king vultures because they're really colorful. Yeah. I actually didn't realize that they were a South American species, and they came up into Mexico. Mm. Um, I guess I always, like, visually put them in a box with other, like, <laughs> old world vultures that are kind of weird looking. Yeah. But yeah, those are, those are a South American vulture that is uh, up through Central and North America. Cool. So... Those are our North American vultures. In South America, we have literally every single one of the aforementioned vultures except for the California condor, which, as you guys probably know, super endangered, only really occurs in a few populations out west. Um, but in addition to all those vultures, they also have two species of yellow-headed vulture, mm -hmm. which are in the same genus as turkey vultures. So they're all very closely related, and they have some fun uh, relationships with each other, <laughs> like literally, like behaviors and stuff. Yeah. Um, 
And then we also have the Andean condor. So we have two different condors. And those are the only condors in the world. Um, and I do want to give a shout out to condors because they're <laughs> freaking amazing. And um, they are the Earth's largest soaring birds. So um, these vultures are like truly an incredible group of animals on the global stage. Um, and uh, with regards to the California condor, um, this that specific bird is really an outlier compared to all of the other vultures that we still have in this pair of continents. Um, and that's kind of because it's, I don't know, representing that sort of older extinct period of American history um, that we talk about so often on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Of course, the uh, (laughs) Pleistocene megafauna and um, those just vast herds of animals we used to have. And so, um, yeah, the California condor kind of fits into that niche of like, you know, the uh, pronghorn antelope. Uh, and other similar species that are kind of relics of an era gone by. It just happens the California condor is struggling a lot more than some of those other species to keep up with how the environment has changed so dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, But otherwise, they are all fairly similar. And all of these birds share in common a lot of things like their fairly social birds um they tend to be really monogamous so like they build a lot of relationships with each other within their own species um and most importantly they all are scavengers and they all share their scavenging habit and a lot of scavenging adaptations which also means this is why it's really fun and interesting these like different relationships they have with each other um as scavengers obviously their biggest competitors are other scavengers. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to go ahead and say something that will sound a little controversial. Oh. Um, but um, other scavengers that aren't birds just freaking suck. Wow. Yeah, I know. They're terrible. So basically none of them matter. Uh, <laughs> wow. Okay. I know. Yeah, controversial <laughs> statement there. Um, and so that really leaves like the biggest competitors um, as other vultures. And so, yeah, they, they beat each other up. Sometimes they <laughs> share. Sometimes they beat up mountain lions uh it's amazing i'm so excited (laughs) yeah um so the first thing i want to talk about with these guys is some of the the things they have in common primarily their consumption of the dead and how they function as a cleanup crew because this is freaking amazing um and it turns out I have been wrong about some information that I was not aware had been updated. And so Mm. I have told people lies. (gasps) I know. But that to me is honestly very exciting because, you know, it's it's not necessarily that the information was untrue. It was just, you know, this is information that was our best guess for how things worked at the time. Sure. And we have since learned new things. And so... Our understanding of science keeps evolving, and now there's, like, (laughs) new stuff, which, I mean, that's the best way to lie, honestly. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. the only acceptable way to lie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I'm going to say cathartids sometimes just to make sure that we're being clear on the fact that these guys are not the bald eagle vultures, (laughs) 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 like the literally bald eagle vultures uh, of the old world, um, they are specifically adapted to scavenging on dead 
vertebrates. Okay. The larger the species of cathartid, the larger the carcass they can eat. Duh. Um, and that's both because they tend to be more dominant at the carcass because they can just like shove other vultures away. Um, but also because the larger they are, the more powerful their uh, attributes <laughs> are, like their beak and talons, if they mm-hmm. have talons. Um, Do some of them not have talons? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so I should probably <laughs> mention, and I, I planned on talking about this um, at some point anyway, but uh, they are not birds of prey. Okay. Yeah, so cathartiformes, um, all of our New World vultures are not birds of prey, do not have bird of prey features as a general rule, which is a huge thing that separates them from, again, literally bald eagle vultures. <laughs> um, they don't have talons. They don't have sharp hooked beak. Um, they sometimes have some similarities. Um, but a lot of our vultures are just like flat footed, like not even like turkeys might have lar- larger, more powerful nails than some of these vultures do. Okay. So they're really, really different in that respect. And that affects the way that they can feed on dead stuff for sure. Uh, that's mm-hmm. one reason why things get kind of gross with vultures, <laughs> just as a warning. Um, but if they are bigger, like a California condor is obviously going to have a stronger beak than a turkey vulture. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be easier for that animal to break through the skin of a dead large animal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, before it's putrefied. <laughs> <laughs> now, there is there is a notable exception to the scavenging rule, and that is freaking black vultures, which, I mean, I feel like we talk about vultures a lot. <laughs> Just because I think... As, as educators, I should say. Yeah. As educators, I think we talk about vultures a lot because people find them interesting. So yeah. you might know this stuff already. Um, but black vultures can be a bit what we, what we would call raptorial, which means they actually will kill things that are alive sometimes um, if the thing they're killing is helpless prey, like little lizards and insects or newborn babies. <laughs> Uh, like nestlings and hatchling sea turtles or uh, newborn calves and other livestock. So like not necessarily wow. small things. Like obviously a newborn calf is much larger than a black vulture, but black vultures are responsible for killing a lot of them. Wow. Um, and they kind of got on farmers' shit lists for a while back in uh, the early days when there were lax laws. Yeah. Um, and people would just, you know, set up traps to kill vultures because – you know, sometimes they would kill their calves. Yeah. Um, but that's the only exception. Um, all of the others are scavengers. Nice. What does a turkey trap look like? Do they, like, lure it in with, like, a carcass and have, like, a snap trap or something? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> because, okay, uh, there's also a lot of, um, like, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, studies that use vulture traps too. And so usually what people would do, even when they were like trapping them to kill them back in the day, uh, it was a walk-in trap. Okay. Because one thing we'll learn is that vultures tend to attract more vultures. Yeah. And the more vultures there are, the more additional vultures show up. And so if they have like a walk-in trap by a carcass or with a carcass inside of it, um, it'll just keep attracting more and more vultures. And they'll just be like, oh, how do I get out of this? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's a really effective way to trap them. Nice. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah. they're kings of scavenging, not kings of intelligence. Hey, they have a social intelligence, okay? Uh, okay. And they like, get dumber the more there are. <laughs> sure. And to be fair, they probably were a little distracted by consuming the carcass, which is what they're really there to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so one other thing I want to mention about vultures, uh, these cathartids, is that they are masters of energy efficiency. And that also affects their foraging habits. So every single one of them is capable of traveling hundreds of kilometers without flapping a single time. And we did talk about this quite a bit in the Swainson's Hawk episode about how soaring birds can do that. So I'm not going to go into any detail there. Um, But basically, they're so comfortable with soaring um, that they can be really hesitant to land at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not really good at taking off, especially <laughs> if they've gorged themselves on food and they're extra heavy. So this means uh, it's not uncommon for them to find a, per- a carcass and then perch near it and just hang out and watch it for like a day or so to make sure that, number one, the animal is actually dead. <laughs> <laughs> and number two, um, that there's no large predators hanging out to take advantage of their slow, mm-hmm. lazy vultureness once they land on the ground. Also means things tend to decompose a bit um, as they're waiting to consume it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which brings us to a discussion of the carcass itself, which <laughs> oh, gosh. is probably my favorite thing that I have learned. And this is where some of that new information that I was a liar about in the past <laughs> uh, is coming up. So I'm here to correct my ways. Okay, the carcass. <laughs> there are a ton of nutrients, obviously, in a vertebrate carcass. And so it seems like a really good source of food for pretty much everything. There's just a very small problem with that food source, which is... It's tough to get into. I don't know. Oh, no. Oh. It's too big. Oh, oh. Um, There's a lot of problems. Why? So, so like, yeah. Um, they can kill them? <laughs> uh, the, the answer I was looking for is that, like, rotting things are really dangerous to oh, eat. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, like, there's a reason we don't keep, like, meat in our fridge past its expiration because, you know, dangerous pathogens can colonize it, make you sick, literally kill you, food poisoning, Mm -hmm. there's, like, a whole ecosystem of microbes that are nasty hanging out in the carcass. Yeah. Um, Which is also, in my opinion, the most fascinating thing about vultures um, because how how the hell are they (laughs) eating things that would literally kill so many other animals? Yeah. 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 Uh, so there's a ton of dangerous bacteria. And vultures, especially the smaller and weaker ones, sometimes have to just wait for extra decomposition to set in just to break through the skin. Like if a turkey vulture finds a carcass and no other mammals or larger vultures have gotten there yet, mm-hmm. and they just like can't break through the skin. So they'll just sit around and wait for it to rot more in order to eat it (laughs) um again remember not birds of prey lack bird of prey features so what (laughs) the microbiome of a carcass it turns out is mostly microbes that were part of the animal's microbiome when it was alive and some of those microbes only become pathogenic 
in a carcass environment, like when the animal is dead. So like they're totally fine, happy to be around you when you're alive. Mm -hmm. But the moment you die, um, they kind of colonize and probably as a strategy to compete with other microbes for all those sudden nutrients that are available, uh, they release a lot of toxins. Mm. Also, if the animal died of a disease, those disease microbes also colonize the carcass too. Um, in addition to those microbes, there are also bacteria from the soil, fungi, nematodes, insects, other, you know, creatures that will colonize the carcass to take advantage of it. Um, so here's a quote from one study or like the primary study on this that I read, which is by uh, Zepeda, Mendoza, and other contributors from 2018. Um they pointed out vultures are, because of this, exposed to a variety of pathogens, including those that cause anthrax, tuberculosis, and brucellosis. Um, and that's why a better understanding of various aspects for their biology are necessary, such as their susceptibility to the pathogens in their diet and their role in the transmission of infectious diseases. And this has been studied, that's the end of the quote, um, this has been studied <laughs> Uh, but we still have a lot to learn about this because what we have known about vultures for a long time is that they seem very capable of protecting themselves against these pathogens. And we haven't quite understood how or why or whether they are also spreaders of those diseases because it doesn't really appear that they are. But it's very like, who the hell knows? This is crazy, right? Um have have we talked about some theories for this before? I don't think so. Okay. I've definitely um, had some programs where I've talked about some of our older information about this topic before. Yeah. Um, one one longstanding theory had to do with um, their incredibly acidic stomachs. Mm. Yep. Um, which uh, it's been and, – and, you know, to be clear, they are rather acidic and it's kind of hard to test this because stomachs tend to be the most acidic when they're actively digesting things. And so depending on like if you had to kill the animal and perform a necropsy to get the acid, mm -hmm. there's a lot of components here and we're not totally sure on the reliability of what we've done to determine the acidity levels before. For example, in the study that I just mentioned, um, they did measure some stomach acidity, but it didn't seem more acidic than like uh, chickens or other scavengers. Interesting. Um, which is interesting, but they pointed out that there are a lot of flaws in the way that they measured it that may not really be described by the real living animal experiencing digestion yeah um but basically there have been um other indicators that they have incredibly acidic stomachs and that that may filter out some of those pathogens um and the acidity also applies to vomit and excrement of the vulture as well i've heard some reports of people receiving chemical burns from turkey vulture vomit mm -hmm. um when it's incredibly acidic vultures will vomit as a defense so <laughs> uh, it's a really nasty way to like ward off intruders and if you let it sit on your skin you can get burned from that acidic level thing but as far as the pathogens it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense why that alone like it could be a component of filtering out the bacteria but vultures also have their own microbiome yeah. so clearly 
the stomach acid isn't killing off every microbe that comes through there and there has to be some other component involved. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this study looked at the <laughs> microbiome of, or microbiomes plural, of the vulture. And it's pretty incredible. So it turns out uh, from even previous studies, vultures' bald wrinkly heads have their own separate microbiome <laughs> and that actually overlaps with their gut microbiome but isn't exactly the same weird i know <laughs> uh, and i'm sure i mean i'm not going to explain why these microbiomes are important i'm sure it's become a lot more mainstream now for us to understand the importance of our own gut microbiomes and stuff too. Like we know that they have a role in producing neurotransmitters, for example, and and it turns out our, even in humans, our gut microbiome, our flora, our, our other symbiotes living with us inside our body that help us be alive are really important to us functioning as healthy individuals. Yeah. And uh, vultures have that, but also in their face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have all sorts of creepy crawlies on our face. Just saying. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But they're nothing like the vultures' yeah. creepy crawlies on their nasty face. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it turns out their face uh, actually has more variation in not only the species, but the functions of bacteria in their face microbiome than they do in their gut, which actually kind of makes sense. Because if you think about, like, a vulture coming into contact with a carcass – Obviously, their face is going in before it ever gets to their gut. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, what is in a vulture's microbiome? Oh, let's discuss. This is freaking amazing. And uh, it turns out a lot of the vulture's microbiome is actually from the carcass microbiome. Um, that includes pathogens with functions that appear to have no effect on vulture health, but would be deadly for other animals to consume or have in their microbiome. Mm-hmm. So here's here's another quote from the article, uh, the study. Most of the significantly more abundant potential pathogens found in the facial skin microbiome are known to produce anthrax-like illnesses, periodontis, pneumonia, and tuberculosis in mammals, while those found more abundantly in the gut are known to cause gastroenteritis gas gangrene, food poisoning, and dysentery in humans. Dang. So is part of the reason why these things don't affect them is because they're specifically like mammal diseases and it, you know, vultures being birds, they just are not affected or maybe not affected as strongly? It could be a component of it, but um, these things are also very pathogenic for um, birds too. Like okay. there are certainly things there. Um, and so- Although they identified in these microbiomes these incredibly pathogenic things living there, they also identified ways that the other flora in their microbiomes are offering protections from those pathogens that are coexisting with them. Nice. Um, so this is where things get kind of wild. So to be clear, we definitely need more studies on this because – um, this study demonstrated uh, the presence of things that we know function in certain ways, but we haven't really demonstrated like how the actual ecology of the microbiome works or like the extent to which these things are helping. Mm -hmm. But this is pretty great evidence um, that they are almost certainly receiving protections from their uh, flora that they have living in them. Cool. So they found beneficial bacteria. Um, they found 
phages, which are viruses that infect and replicate within bacteria. So they're viruses that only affect bacteria. Okay. Um, they found predatory eukaryotes, so just completely different organisms that are there, like, chasing and eating things, <laughs> um, and uh, some specific colonization resistances. And there's a lot of really cool things they identified, and I really want to list them all off, but um, I'll just pick out a few examples that I thought were really freaking cool. <laughs> so they identified species that prevent colonization of dangerous bacteria. They found taxa of bacteria um, from groups that we know have insecticide, fungicide, and antiparasitic characteristics in them. Um, they also identified in the micro my, uh, the microbiome flora genes for the biosynthesis of antibiotics like tetracycline. <laughs> That's <laughs> they had wild. a list of the different antibiotics <laughs> that they found genes th- for the production of. Yeah. Um. Freaking amazing. Um, another example, they identified an invertebrate called et, uh, Adenita vaga. I have no idea what that is. Um, but it's an invertebrate that feeds on dead bacteria and protozoans. And it's almost seven times more abundant in the vulture guts than on their faces, where there's probably a lot more dying things. Mm-hmm. Um it goes on and on and on. The different phages that kill bacteria, the specific like, oh, hey, we found this one really pathogenic bacteria and the very specific bacteria that prevents it from colonizing. Like, yeah, really, really amazing stuff like that. And again, this is only the beginning. More research is certainly incoming. But one thing we do know is, number one, the role ecologically these vultures are performing is essential They are cleaning up carcasses that otherwise would spread pathogenic microbes to species that don't have a specialized microbiome like the vulture. And we also know that the soils around carcasses that have been consumed by vultures have fewer pathogens um, because of the vultures being there. And we're fairly certain, and we've been certain for a long time, that vultures are not only consuming and neutralizing pathogens, But that whatever their protections are, whether it's the acid or their microbiomes, um, their protections are being shed in their feces around the soils and generally just preventing diseases like even rabies from spreading into the wider ecosystem. Dang. Which is amazing. So unraveling this component is really cool, but understanding just how essential vultures are in like living up to their purifying name (laughs) is amazing like they're not just cleaning up like unsightly dead things that smell bad like they're literally cleaning up the pathogens that may have existed in those animals especially Mm -hmm. the ones that died from diseases it's kind of amazing and um i just we just need to have like a moment to like fully embrace how incredible that is no, yeah, that's super cool. I bet so like their nests must be both very <laughs> gross but also very clean. <laughs> yeah. A lot of vultures. <laughs> oh god. Um I didn't really like write this stuff down because it wasn't really relevant to mm-hmm. the topic, but uh in my readings there have been descriptions of of vulture nests like, you know, on cliff faces or caves or something where they call it like a bathtub ring <laughs> of feces <laughs> around the nest. <laughs> 
gross. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but hey, think about how much that's bolstering those little baby vultures in their <laughs> microbiome. Yes. In their little yes. gut flora. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I will point out vultures do tend to not make like stick nests, but rather just nest on the ground or on cliffs or something. Mm-hmm. So maybe that keeps it a little more clean. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Just need a good rain. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but regardless, you know, it might be that, you know, vulture uh, poo is a lot cleaner than you would think considering the sorts of pathogens <laughs> that tend to live uh, in their faces and poo mm-hmm, and gut mm-hmm. and, yeah, and that they're they're constantly consuming. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Amazing. I love vultures. Man. They're so good. <laughs> It's very, very good. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk about some of like these specific species a little bit more. And uh, again, my focus or my primary interest is in their sort of ecological roles and how they interact with each other and how who and what they are as vultures <laughs> affects like the way that they clean stuff up. <laughs> um, I'm gonna start with the California condor because they are so different from every other vulture. Um, even though historically they were super widespread. Um, and a lot of the information that, uh, people tend to cite for California condors comes from historical information because, you know, they're so restricted now and they're so, I mean, they're just not behaving quite in the natural way where we would get as much information about them as we maybe did historically. Mm -hmm. Um, but from what we know, they are absolutely not a habitat specialist. In the Pleistocene, they had a huge di- distribution, so they definitely had a really diverse set of habitats they used, um, including in those modern populations that we still have today. They go everywhere, and they can tolerate tons of climates. But most of the foraging that they do is documented in open grassland and open woodlands, for example, oak savannas in the uh, San Joaquin Valley um, or the coastlines. Okay. So they forage only in open or primarily in open areas. And uh, I don't know if I, I, I maybe accidentally skipped this part, but the primary division in like how these vultures behave has to do with smell. Did I, did I, I totally skipped that, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, you did. That's my bad because this is so important. <laughs> important, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, this one trait kind of informs a lot of the ecology and behaviors of all of our American vultures, including their habitats. So some vultures have the ability to smell, which is not a normal bird trait. Yeah. This includes probably the king vulture and the Cathartes vultures. So that's the two yellow-headed vultures and the turkey vulture. None of the other vultures can smell. And they seem to rely primarily on keen eyesight in order to hunt. So that would include the California condor. So that makes sense why it's foraging in more open areas. It's basing what it can find in terms of dead prey on what it can see. Okay. Yep. So these guys are rarely the first species to discover a carcass. Um, They usually are looking for assemblies of vultures and other scavengers on a carcass that are already there. And so once they spot that, uh, they get on the ground and they immediately dominate 
anything else that's on the carcass because they're just so huge. Again, the largest soaring bird in the world. Uh, the only exception to this rule is golden eagles. Uh, these eagles are very formidable opponents. They do have bird of prey weapons. And even though co these condors weigh twice as much as them, um, they're kind of scared of golden eagles. <laughs> um, but even then, they, they will sometimes chase golden eagles off. So basically, they don't hesitate to just take the carcass from other species that are smaller, and mm -hmm. they just dominate it. What is a condor wingspan? God, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, like eight feet or something? It's freaking ridiculous. Nine foot plus wingspan. Nine feet. Yeah. Okay. God, that's enormous. That's so hard to imagine. Mm -hmm. I don't, and have you, okay, I know um, somebody that you used to work for that, that were, you know. <laughs> I've been thinking about that the whole, <laughs> the whole time. time. Yeah. <laughs> Laura Mendenhall, uh, shout out to her. She's amazing. She works she for is. the Fish and Wildlife Service. Today, um, she's been involved in some California condor work. Yes. Has some incredible footage from her time working with them and photos and God, it's amazing to see like little fluffy baby condors that look like they could, you know, literally kill me if they wanted to because they're yeah. so enormous. Like it's it's hard to wrap your mind around how big <laughs> these birds are until you yeah. see them next to a human. So please look them up immediately. Mm -hmm. She also almost lost a finger to a California condor. Oh my God, really? Yeah. Are we allowed to tell other people's stories on this? Like how did, like what, it just like snapped at her or what? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And again, with a freaking huge beak, like these guys are a lot tougher than everything else. They're not mm -hmm. as like good at chopping off fingers as a golden eagle probably, but that doesn't really say much <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in terms yeah. of finger chopping ability. Mm -hmm. So uh Yeah. Condors, modern feeding habits or, or, you know, historical feeding habits, um, they pretty much eat whatever they run across. Um, and they do have to, like, consciously satisfy their calcium needs because a lot of, like, what they're actually consuming on a carcass is soft tissue. Like, almost all of the meat they ingest is soft tissue. They're not eating the hide, the hair, or other ind indigestible material um they um very rarely cast pellets because of this um okay. which you know they're not birds of prey but they will sometimes cast pellets if they're eating gross indigestible things <laughs> um so they will readily ingest bone materials as a an exclusion an exception exception that's <laughs> an exception to this rule words are so hard sometimes they are and they they will make like some really special efforts to find and swallow the pieces of bone that are small enough to digest. It's one theory for why they eat so many plastics and other like materials they absolutely should not be eating, <laughs> but is like one of the reasons why we just can't let condors <laughs> yeah. do condor things without human intervention. They consume so many little bits of plastic and trash. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, they they go to some pretty special lengths to just swallow whatever like hand bones or other little tiny pieces of bone they can find. Hmm. Um, and if they have the, the choice, uh, modern condors will choose like small to medium sized carcasses, probably because they have smaller bones that are easily digestible, um, which makes this like 
really interesting distinction between condors of today and condors of like the long past. Yeah. Because like I mentioned, they are a relic from the Pleistocene, um, sort of a last gasp of that megafauna era. And, you know, I, sometimes I forget that like, obviously we have fossils where we literally know the species. Like we have fossilized California condors from the Pleistocene. Yeah. And we know like their, their, um, ancestors that were different species as well from the fossil record and we know the food they ate and it was strikingly different from the species fed upon in recent historical times probably because of those massive extinctions of large vertebrates obviously at the end of the pleistocene and since then there have been reintroductions or introductions rather of many species of domestic livestock which have introduced a brand new food source so it's dramatically different. Um, there's uh, actually a list of food remains that have been discovered uh, in Pleistocene condors, nests, and uh, uh, around the remains. Um, here's one list of species. It included bison species, horse species, camels like camelops species, and mountain goats. Um, and there's an even more recent study um, published that looked at like carbon and nitrogen stable isotopes in condor feather and bone samples, which is kind of crazy that you can like figure out their diets that way too. There's just so <laughs> many ways to do like forensic science on the recent, uh, you know, uh, paleontological past. Mm-hmm. Um, and it illustrated that the California condor diet changed throughout time um, dramatically depending on that food availability. So basically during the Pleistocene, Condors fed, California condors fed on terrestrial megafauna and marine mammals Mm. specifically. But then as those terrestrial megafauna went extinct um, and became pretty rare and marine mammals also uh, had a pretty steep decline in numbers because of commercial harvesting um, and with the increase in cattle ranching, um, the condors switched to primarily feeding on terrestrial mammals. So um, their diet pretty significantly changed over time um, and could be another reason why they're struggling. But there, there are a lot of theories out there that uh, for at least some condor populations, uh, a large part of how they lived was feeding on like whale carcasses and stuff that washed up onto beaches. And it's weird to think of that as being a relic of the past, but it kind of is. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's not something that um, happens as frequently today as it as it used to. Um, and yeah, our landscape has totally changed. So that's weird. Okay, condors behind us. Um, a lot of what I'm going to talk about next has to do with like. The little vultures. <laughs> um, turkey vultures, black vultures, and yellow-headed vultures have a lot in common. So I'm going to kind of lay some groundwork for those species and talk about their differences. And, uh, of course, then we have um, our king vulture and the Andean condor, which is pretty freaking amazing. But turkey vultures are, I think, one of the most well-known and well-studied and amazing vultures that we have. Yeah. So forgive me if I talk forever about turkey vultures because they're <laughs> deserving of that Aww. and pretty freaking amazing. So turkey vultures feeding um, is very different because turkey vultures have an incredible sense of smell. Um, They actually prefer really fresh dead things. (laughs) 
but they're so tiny and weak, so they can't open thick skin. So <laughs> they basically will like almost always arrive first at a carcass um, because they're just so good at like sniffing it out. Um, and that includes in every habitat you could think of. They live in like every habitat um, and they will hunt and forage in every habitat, uh, which is kind of making them amazing because even in dense canopies of trees where there, you know, isn't a good line of sight for the vultures that are only using sight. Yeah. Turkey vultures are like, okay, there's the carcass and they can find stuff really easily. Um, but then they get there and they're like, ah, oh, dang, I'm, I'm too tiny. I can't break it open. And so, you know, if they're lucky, um, you know, maybe it got opened by a mammal or a larger vulture already. Um, but otherwise they just have to wait until it goes putrid, literally, until they can nice. eat it. Yeah. <laughs> nasty, nasty. Uh, if it's intact and large enough, they can enter the carcass <laughs> through the anus. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the genitals, the mouth, nostrils, eyes, etc. Um but, you know, as as they are able to get into the carcass, they are very deft, picky little eaters who will kind of pick, you know, deftly from the carcass <laughs> and um, swiftly ingest things. Uh, <laughs> but they're actually, like, pretty, pretty good at picking through the carcass. Like, okay, this kind of blew my mind. Apparently, they're really good at inverting skin. Hmm. So, like... If they find a squirrel or an opossum, they will just like um, like skin it basically to eat from the legs, so they're avoiding the tough skin altogether. Yeah. So they'll just skin stuff. Um, <laughs> they will pull mice and shrews apart. Um, when eating skunks, they'll leave the scent glands completely intact. Like they're good picky little eaters. <laughs> uh, and uh, this is both in North and South America, of course. Yeah, so they're they're eating lots of little scraps and getting a lot more varied parts from the carcass, uh, which is pretty great. <laughs> now, uh, they also seem very resistant to disease, and we've definitely studied turkey vultures more than any other animals in this regard. For example, um, some experiments with turkey vultures have indicated they have a resistance to botulism that is 100,000 times the tolerance found in pigeons. Okay. A hundred thousand times, Nicole. <laughs> Why pigeons? Why are pigeons getting, like, picked be- be- because on? Because they're a bird. Because we always compare things to pigeons. This is in the 1930s, okay? We always compared things to pigeons, Nicole. All right. Yeah, get out of here with your pigeon nonsense. Get your, why do you hate pigeons? I don't. You're the one saying they're crappy and <laughs> d- resistances. Okay, okay, okay. Um, and... You know, similar experiments haven't been run with other vultures like condors. Um, Specifically in information on condors, I've seen people say based on the studies with turkey vultures and the behaviors we've seen with California condors, probably this also applies to other vultures, which, yeah, okay, cool. So as far as their sight versus smell, um, I really want to show you some examples about how this has been demonstrated because it's freaking amazing. Their excellent sense of smell, which has been demonstrated many, many times. Um, for one, their olfactory organs in their brain are hugely developed for a bird. Um, they have huge nostrils. If you ever get a chance to look at a turkey vulture in real life, like at a zoo or something, you can like look right through their nostrils. Like it's <laughs> kind of creepy to be honest. Um, they, uh, it's their their sense of smell is better than pretty much everything else. Uh, that's that's a vulture. Condors, king vulture, black vulture. It's kind of on par with the yellow headed vultures because they're all so, you know, such a tight little family. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
But we know that they locate their food by smell, and that has been demonstrated time and time again. For example, turkey vultures in experiments have been caught in traps that are hidden from view um, in ways to demonstrate that they're finding it through scent. Um, they've been caught in traps baited with scent alone. Mm. Um, they will find food uh, by approaching from downwind specifically, so it's concealed food. They also have been demonstrated to be attracted to mushrooms and flowers that have carrion fragrances. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, you know, like uh, white flowers that are always covered in flies and stuff? Turkey vultures are attracted to those things <laughs> in experiments. Um, and, uh, of course... Um, very well known is uh, that if you use certain fragrances, uh, like this one specific compound that has a strong skunk-like odor, natural gas companies introduced that odor into pipelines and will discover leaks uh, where turkey vultures found uh, found the leak in the pipeline um, because they were circling over the leak in the pipeline <laughs> attracted to that odor. So pretty, pretty amazing. And it's kind of variable depending on the situation whether they are apparently using their sense of smell versus other things but it's really really apparent in the tropics um like in the uh panamanian forests um it appears that they primarily use their sense of smell to hunt that region and they locate many many more carcasses than than they locate many more carcasses than mammalian scavengers do in those environments. And remember, mammals can smell. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, and yet, turkey vultures are so efficient at scavenging these areas that they are finding more. Um, in experiments, uh, they found 71 out of 74 chicken carcasses within three days of throwing them out. Mm. And there's absolutely no difference in the time it took them to find those carcasses whether they were concealed or not concealed, hmm. regardless of the amount of canopy cover, et cetera. And even though they might struggle to find those things like the first day, um, after it's a day old, they readily find them. So the longer it's out, the more quickly and easily they find them. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that, of course, they can find things much more quickly in an open habitat or semi-open habitats based on similar uh, experiments in Venezuela. So... This leads us to um, their competition, <laughs> which is other vultures. And as you know, we've said this before, they are competing with their fellow vultures and their non-smelling vulture friends are using eyesight. So basically, in any place where um, other vultures exist, that's their competition. Black vultures are huge competition for them in parts of the South uh, U.S. and year-round in South America. And black vultures have a couple of things over turkey vultures. They are more social than turkey vultures. They tend to feed in, like, big frenzies compared mm -hmm. to turkey vultures. They also fly higher than the turkey vulture because they're not trying to catch the scent of food. They're, like, flying really high up in the sky, like, looking for vultures, basically. They're, they're basically stalking turkey vultures <laughs> All of the time. They're more aggressive than the turkey vulture. I mentioned before, they will literally kill things, which sets them apart from other vultures altogether. Mm -hmm. 
And they forage the most often in open habitats where they can see better. So all of these things lead to them pretty much just exploiting the turkey vulture in order to uh, survive in life. And the, the turkey vultures have a hard time dealing with that sometimes. So that's their main competitor in North America. And these guys, at some types of carcasses at least, will completely replace turkey vultures just by their sheer numbers like so many black vultures just show up that there's no elbow room left for the turkey vulture and it's like all right see ya i'm out of here and it leaves to go find something else yeah it's just easier to find new food than to put up with the black vultures Mm -hmm. that's very unfortunate for the turkey vulture because they find it first but they can't actually eat it first i know right Uh, yeah, but that actually is, is kind of a good thing because in regions where, um, you know, there are other larger vultures around, if say a king vulture shows up or a condor shows up, that's kind of a good thing for them because that vulture can open up the carcass for them. And as long as they're not getting like elbowed out by like a mob (laughs) of black vultures, uh, they can at least for a little while take advantage of that. And, um, some vultures are more likely to just like, allow a feeding frenzy to occur Mm -hmm. than to try to chase off competition because uh, i mean you know they know that they could beat them up and that's fine (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so sometimes when this happens sometimes they'll just the turkey vultures will will patiently wait for the vultures to have their fill and leave and because they're so good at like picking apart the little bits that maybe don't get consumed you know they'll just kind of skin a leg and then eat that meat or whatever (laughs) um and that works out fine for them in terms of like actually getting into fights, excuse me, with with other vultures, um, turkey vultures in some places can actually win some fights with black vultures and fight them off. Um, really, the the main problem is the mob mentality, um, and uh, actually, in some studies, turkey vultures could win a majority of interactions with black vultures. Uh, you know, if they weren't outnumbered, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, of course, they also attract other scavengers, like other birds of prey, um, mammalian predators and stuff. But all of those interactions tend to go the same way as what we've already discussed. So nothing there is super surprising. Um, except that, you know, in general, everybody watches turkey vultures and everybody follows and exploits them, <laughs> which is so sad. So yeah, um, as far as um, the black vulture actually feeding on the carcasses, they still cannot open large carcasses on their own. So they are dependent on larger scavengers or putrefaction in order to do so. They enter the carcass the same way as others. <laughs> and uh, uh, once they are able to just stick their entire head into the carcass, <laughs> that's what they will do um, after gradually working their way inside. So unlike turkey vultures, um, they usually don't use their their feet. Like some turkey vultures will like put their feet on a carcass to, to leverage it. Mm-hmm. Um, black vultures just kind of use their head and just stuff it in there and just like rip things out of the carcass. They, they also sometimes just extract like the viscera from the carcass, which is interesting. So like all the like squishy organs and stuff, they'll just like nice. rip those out of the carcass and pull them out. I have here a quote from uh, one of my source, my primary source that I'll have in, in the description that this extraction usually prompts a rush of birds which rapidly pull the material apart and gulp it down in large chunks so this is like your typical feeding frenzy um situation they're just very quick and very gulpy in their feeding habits nice 
The yellow-headed vultures, I actually did not know existed until I did research for this podcast. I really didn't know anything about them. And I don't have a lot of information about them. And actually, some of these species, not much is known. Like, I think for the greater yellow-headed vulture, we straight up don't know anything about its nesting habits Hmm. because we just haven't been able to do the research on it, which is fascinating. But these guys are living only in South America And again, they're very similar to turkey vultures. The main difference has to do with their habitats. (laughs) (laughs) So the greater yellow-headed vulture is a forest bird. Um, It has, again, a highly developed sense of smell. And it will soar over forests in search of forest mammals like primates, sloths, opossums. And... When it competes with turkey vultures, it is also dominant against turkey vultures. So any of those interactions, they'll just beat up the turkey vultures. So they're very similar to turkey vultures, except that they can beat them up, <laughs> basically. And then they only live in the in the forests. And because of that, they also play a really important role in leading uh, their own species, black vultures and king vultures, to carcasses the same way turkey vultures do. Now, these guys are often the first to arrive at a carcass, even over turkey vultures, where they exist together. Mm-hmm. And it is also subordinate to the larger vultures. In these situations, in these forested environments, because there's so much overlap here, the black vulture is usually the last species to arrive at the carcass (laughs) because it's all covered by leaf litter and stuff um, and is probably subordinate to all of the larger species, including the greater yellow-headed vulture. So Mm. even though black vultures really dominate in the U.S., um, they really are subservient to all of these other vultures in South America, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. And the greater yellow-headed vultures are pretty solitary, so they find a carcass and feed there one at a time. On the other hand, the lesser yellow-headed vulture is widespread in open habitats. These are our grassland and wetland habitat vultures that specialize on feeding on those things and is the most recorded vulture feeding on fish and reptiles compared to other vultures. So these guys have completely different ecology and they're a little bit smaller than their greater cousins. Mm. And the way that these guys all interact is kind of interesting to me. So like the other yellow-headed vulture species, with their developed sense of smell, they too are usually the first to arrive at the carcass. And they're really not interacting with the greater at all because they're in completely different habitats. So this yellow-headed vulture arrives first in 71% of the time uh, in some studies, and they get displaced very quickly, often more frequently than even the researchers expected in these studies. And what's really cool here is that there appear to be some physiological adaptations the yellow-headed vulture has Mm -hmm that allow it to just like be displaced and they're cool with it. <laughs> so so they get there first and it turns out their mouths are actually wider than other vulture species. So they have these really wide mouths, which means they can arrive there first and they are really good at getting into the carcass and just gulping down large bites of food. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time other you know competitors arrive and they're displaced – 
they've already gotten a pretty good meal out of that carcass and they just let it happen and will go off and find a different meal. Um, which I thought is a really cool strategy. And yeah. like, I, it's the only time I've really heard of like an adaptation being identified in a vulture, like specifically to help it with like its, you know, competition with other vultures. Yeah. I think that's pretty freaking cool. So yeah, they forge close to the ground and uh, get stalked by other birds and lead other birds to carcasses but they make really good use of it and i think that's pretty neat yeah they're really they look like turkey vultures but they have really beautifully colored faces look them up (laughs) they do look like turkey vultures just with yellow heads i don't know what i expected yeah some of them are like rainbow (laughs) i know they're beautiful it's kind of like you know king vultures have those sort of like really brightly colored i don't know a lot of the other uh vultures that are like non-north american have some beautiful colors andean condors are gorgeous too and their their face their skin has like such beautiful like blushings yeah <laughs> yeah like little violets and yellows just being oh. able to see straight through his head god <laughs> it literally looks like a turkey vulture but like somebody dumped oil on their head and it has like that iridescent oil shine yes almost. yes yeah, or like what are those like dumb like um color changing thermo? Oh, like, yeah, like a mood ring. <laughs> yeah, like thing. a mood ring, that sort of a, a situation. Oh, that's it's amazing. exactly what they look like. So we we started with our biggest bird in the in soaring bird in the world. We got into our smaller, most abundant vultures. We're coming back up now to the bigger vultures in South America, the king vulture, and finally the Andean condor, and. I don't have a lot to add for some of these species because, you know, we've talked so extensively about the differences between these vultures' feeding habits, and some of those same rules apply here. The king vulture in South America and Mexico, (laughs) Central America, um, these guys are forest birds. And I mentioned that they may be one of the only vultures besides these turkey vulture friends <laughs> that can smell. And there is conflicting information about this. Hmm. Um, some researchers believe that they are able to search with smell because they are foraging in these forest habitats. And there is some information and evidence that they can smell. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, there are some studies suggesting that maybe they can't smell and that maybe their primary way of foraging is just follow- following the smaller vultures that live around them. Mm-hmm. And when you say can or cannot smell, you mean like straight up cannot smell at all or just are not very good at it? Oh, that's a great, that's a great. Um, so in this context, what I mean is that they are not foraging okay. by smell. Most birds have an olfactory organ. Mm-hmm. I say most because I'm just not sure. Like, I'm fairly certain all birds have an olfactory organ, right? It's just how well is that developed? How well can they smell? Is it significant enough for them to use in their day-to-day life? Or is it more like, oh, God, I stuck my face into this carcass (laughs) and it smells bad and I'm an eagle and maybe I'll leave. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, So they probably can smell at least some things, um, but they may not be using it to actually hunt or forage Okay, in this instance. Yep. So um, what's really different about king vultures, setting that controversy aside about whether or not they can smell, is that um, they're freaking huge. And uh, <laughs> that really affects how things play out around a carcass for them. So they um, are the only vultures in the regions where they are that are big enough to like move around a carcass 
for other vultures. They're not often fighting off other vultures. So, you know, there are probably other small vultures around them. And they'll be like, hey, thank you, king vulture, for turning that calf around so we can eat the <laughs> other side better. And so, you know, they're playing some role in that. <laughs> Sorry, the ecology around the carcass. I just rem- I just realized that I never mentioned that um, <laughs> some, some vultures like to eat maggots <laughs> on the carcass. Nice. And um, turkey vultures are so good at like picking things up that they've been described as um, eating maggots like chickens scratching in the dirt for grubs. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) I don't know why that just came up in my mind, but I read that somewhere and it made me smile. Nice. There you go. Gross, nasty, nastiness. So they're not like super, super social, but they, they will feed along with other king vultures. (laughs) Uh, Now a Comparison of feeding morphologies among vultures uh, classified the king vulture as a ripper (laughs) (laughs) because it does have a wide skull and strong beak. So it's not a gulper or a scrapper uh, like some of the smaller vultures. Um, So they have a pretty different feeding behavior than any of the others. And uh, they will tear food apart and just in general make things much more accessible for smaller scavengers, which is just so nice. (laughs) So nice of them. They're such kind vultures. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and that's kind of their their role to play in those forested environments. Of course, they're also much better at cleaning up larger carcasses than any of the other species. Now, finally, there are Andean condors. And Andean condors do overlap with king vultures. And I should point out that king vultures have never been documented to initiate any sort of interaction with Andean condors. They are absolutely terrified of Andean condors (laughs) (laughs) because Andean condors are huge. And what I'm about to tell you will make that make a lot of sense. Um, Because in the scavenging world, Andean condors are not only finding things that have naturally died and are just, you know, dead things and like I got to chase off like, I don't know, a little turkey vulture or whatever. Mm-hmm. They will take killed food from large predators yeah, and usurp large predators <laughs> from their own kill in order to feed on it, mm-hmm. which is kind of amazing. So it makes sense why king vultures will not pick a fight with them. Um, Andean condors as a condor and the second largest soaring bird in the world are freaking huge. So I think um, this bird really like tickles me (laughs) in particular because, um, you know, like the name suggests, they are hanging out in the Andes Mountains and um, they have just enormous distances and heights that they will fly. This is the longest mountain range in the world. And a lot of the Andes um, neighbors or includes uh, some of our really famous grassland habitats that we know and love here on Grassland Groupies. Mm -hmm. Um, This includes alpine meadows. And of course, the Andean condor cannot smell. So like you would expect, they tend to be foraging at great heights and they tend to be foraging based on sight in open habitats like you'd expect. So they are foraging on these open mountainous habitats, Mm -hmm. on coastlines, and in grasslands, whether those grasslands are alpine, tundra, or uh, coastal grasslands, or just, you know, one of the many grasslands in that region (laughs) in in Peru and Chile. So um, Colombia, Venezuela, uh, they're, they're not only in, here's what I'm trying to say, 
They're not only <laughs> like the embodiment of like the beauty, power, and majesty of the Andes themselves, the mountains, they embody the beauty and power and majesty of those grasslands. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Just the expansive beautifulness. Um, so they, like our other condors, will forage on marine mammals. They will descend upon the coastal plains of Peru and Chile to search for stranded whales and seals and seabirds. Um, they will even congregate in seal colonies during the birthing season and take advantage of newborns in the seal colonies Dang. and stuff like that. Yeah. So I mentioned black vultures killing live prey. It's not like super common uh, in the same way for Andean condors, mm -hmm. but they will do that. They will murder baby seals. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, <laughs> and um, as this bird is searching for large and medium-sized carcasses, the sorts of things it's feeding on besides marine animals are – the sorts of animals you expect in those grassland regions like guanacos, um, the wild llamas or domestic uh, livestock, things that we've talked about before on this podcast mm -hmm. and things that we will talk about on the podcast in the future, I'm sure. Um, so a lot of those uh, sort of hoofed animals um, that are hanging out in the grasslands or in people's domestic livestock flocks. They will also eat things like rias. So okay. I, I listed a lot of mammal prey. I just want to mention, you know, that there are a lot, a lot of large birds that hoof it on the ground in those grasslands as well. Yeah. They are also feeding on those carcasses, uh, like the carcasses of the rhea. Um, so these guys most notably um, compete with large predators. <laughs> which I think is kind of amazing. There was a really, um, this 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 particular resource from all of, not all about birds, Cornell Lab of Ornithology um, called this particular study an innovative study. Uh, it was a study on the nuisance ecology of scavenging condors. And uh, they demonstrated in this paper that the Andean condors are actually putting on a foraging cost to mountain lions in that region. So uh, they call them pumas in South America. Usually that's the mm -hmm. language here to describe them. Same species, puma con color as mountain lions and cougars. So that is the animal that we're talking about. And basically what happens in these interactions is that when there are Andean condors present, the foraging cost that they exert on pumas by decreasing significantly the amount of time those animals have to feed on their own carcass that they've killed mm -hmm. affects them so much that they increase their kill rates when there are condors around by 50% to make up for the loss of food to the condors. Wow. Yeah. So basically, Andean condors show up at a carcass and will displace pumas mountain lions, con, uh, uh, cougars, from their own kill mm -hmm. so much that it significantly increases the effort that those animals have to go to in regions where the condors exist, Yeah, which is amazing. And of course, this is like the only study I've seen on this nuisance ecology, quote unquote, for the Andean condor. Mm -hmm. um, because if you think of the other types of predators in this region – Nothing is going to be able to stand up to an Andean condor. Yeah. Small foxes, other small predators will not be able to chase off an Andean condor from their prey. Like not even king vultures will pick a fight with these things, right? Yeah. And it turns out 
not even like the biggest predator that they have there <laughs> can fight off the Andean condor. Um, so amazing is their ability to fight them off. So this animal really just by scouring from heights for other scavenging mammals or birds is able to just live a life of absolute luxury and <laughs> absolute indifference to everything else around it as it lands beats anything else away and uh, just happily consumes the dead in those regions. Nice. I find this beautifully ominous <laughs> and beautifully powerful. And I love Andean condors now. I did not know anything about them and uh, they're just freaking cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's our new world vultures. And as they are, you know, kind of interacting with this world in this beautiful symphony of butting heads, sticking their heads in butts, <laughs> <laughs> pooping all over carcasses, consuming rabies, killing the rabies, um, just all in all, purifying the world around us in whatever habitats they are in. I, I, I think that we need to look at them not just as like ominous beacons of death and decay, but as truly the purifying forces you know we gotta we gotta take the myth of the vulture that sort of grim reaper attitude that we have about them and think of them instead as shepherds shepherds <laughs> of the dead in the animal world shepherds that just gently escort pathogenic microbes <laughs> into their gut where they meet an untimely end <laughs> beautiful and that's who they are and uh i love them so much they're beautiful. Um, more on vultures next time when we talk about things that actually have weaponry because they are literally eagles. Nice. Sounds amazing. I have a question. <laughs> okay. Hit me. Let's go. I'm assuming that they also eat, like, dead carnivores. Because, like, I mean, oh, there's just fewer dead carnivores in the landscape, so you don't, like, see that very often in, like, pictures and videos and stuff. But... Like, something oh, has sure. to eat them. So. Absolutely, yeah. Dead okay. carnivores, which, you know, if, if they're not uh, looking at a carnivore's kill and eyeballing <laughs> it for consumption, you know, probably has been located by one of the better locators of dead things, a.k.a. Yeah. turkey vultures, etc. Um, and so, you know, they're still foraging by sight, whatever the carcass may be. Mm -hmm. Um and it will be more rare that it is those animals. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there's plenty of documentations of animals going after uh, even small carnivores and omnivores. You know, opossums and things like that. Which is kind of hilarious because, oh, I mean, not hilarious. It's kind of sad. I don't know. <laughs> um, possums play dead <laughs> is why this is hilarious mm -hmm. to me. Um, and turkey vultures are usually pretty good about, like, you know, knowing whether a possum is dead but I should point out that one of the opossums' defenses is that they secrete an odor that makes them smell dead. Yeah. <laughs> so they will encounter turkey vultures, and turkey vultures will sometimes come down and pick on a possum that's playing dead. Um, I saw one video in particular that made me really sad because, like, the turkey vulture was grabbing the possum by the tail, and it was on a road, and it was, like, playing dead, and oh, it was God. not hurt at all. And it was, like, dragging the possum away with its tail, and the possum <laughs> would, like, wake up for a minute, like, ah! And then, you know... <laughs> You know, their response to being, like, picked on is to, you know, 
either pass out or yeah. play dead or go into that like basically catatonic state, I should say. it's That's more scientifically accurate. They go into a sort of a catatonic state that takes over mm-hmm. and physiologically they produce nasty smells and just like, blah, they like drool out of their mouths or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it just like keeps antagonizing the turkey vulture basically <laughs> to like try and pick on it more. Yeah. And I don't know if it's like fortunate or not that like sometimes turkey vultures have a hard time getting through the skin of <laughs> freshly dead things, aka yeah. alive things in this case. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just kind of a weird mix of things, and it can end badly for the opossum if the turkey vultures attract black vultures, which then yeah. just kind of kill the opossum. Um, but anyway, if you ever do see a vulture picking on an opossum that's just playing dead, feel free to go shoo it away. <laughs> Usually you'll see the opossum kind of like flail a little bit um, as it's being moved or something because, yeah. you know, they are still alive and they are still semi-conscious. So, you know, they, they do have signs of life. Yeah, <laughs> they're not yeah. just like literally looking like they're dead. <laughs> anyway, what a know. weird ecology <laughs> that those animals have going on. Um, yeah. And, you know, when, when I say open habitats for a lot of these sighted animals, even the ones in woodlands, uh, they do like foraging around humans because we create a lot of open vantage points, like roadways even would be considered sort of an open yeah. passageway for them to, to hunt for or scavenge for food on. So, mm-hmm. you know, they they frequently are found around humans, <laughs> around humans. <laughs> Nice. Sorry, what was the original question? <laughs> <laughs> we got there. It, right, was, right. it was about carnivores, whether or not they got. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're not as common, so that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the only reason why. Mm-hmm. Why usually when they list out the primary food sources, it's yeah. carcasses of herbivores. It's just you know a food pyramid sort of thing. In terms, well, a trophic level thing <laughs> is what I meant by that food pyramid. Uh-huh. The natural food pyramid. Yeah. Trophic levels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's more mammals out there that are herbivores. Yes. So, yeah. For sure. Yep, 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 yep. Okay. I just wanted to make sure because that would be interesting if they did not go after carnivores. Yeah. Um, You're very welcome for that information. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You're so welcome. <laughs> yes. Just as a little like side note, if you uh, want to put up a really unique bird feeder in your neighborhood, oh, God. Uh, consider building like a nice platform feeder and uh, throwing out your old meat that you didn't like to eat or that needed to be thrown out. And uh, yeah, you'll get your beautiful vulture friends to, to come gorge themselves. What a great bird feeder idea. The HOA will really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Good luck with that one. Yep. Um, but in, in North America, I should note, our vultures are pretty migratory. So if you're in the north, the, the turkey vultures that live here will fly south for the winter. Um, but, you know, in the southern United States, you have vultures all year round. So nice. enjoy it. <laughs> Year-round bird feeders. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, thanks for listening. The Best Biome is produced through our nonprofit Grassland Groupies, dedicated to inspiring the conservation of grasslands. In the show notes, you can find our website, phone number, and social media accounts. Text, call, or tweet your suggestions, fan mail, or hate mail. If you enjoyed the show and want to support us, tell your friends about us and leave a review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. We couldn't do this without your support. See you again next week.
Vulture, 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 vulture. Beautiful.